Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by adolescents. Boy, I sure don't miss that. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by the Rasta Monster. The energy to make dreams happen are fueled by the Rasta Monster. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we are filmmakers. Uh, We like to analyze films to see what we can learn in the process. Everything from the the writing and storytelling, uh, maybe camera techniques, um, maybe more abstract ideas like the metaphor that a movie may be holding and using as as a, like, oh, hey, this story is actually an allegory for something else entirely um, or, you know, a metaphor for uh, wrestling power from goodness and darkness who knows whatever uh and so it's always interesting to peel back the layers if they assuming there are layers <laughs> not all movies uh know know how to or care to create layers um which is fine uh there's there's something for everyone in this big fat market that we live in yeah and so it's always fun to to see what makes a movie a movie what makes it tick uh and that's what we try to do um, as you know, writers, actors, Todd's a musician, a fantastic one at that. I think you have an album coming out here soon. Is that is finishing? That- yes. Finishing it. Yes. It's in, in fact, I was working on a track last night, the, the final track, not on the album, but the final track for the album. Uh, and I'll be finishing, uh, in December. So it'll come out probably next summer. Very exciting. Damn. Next summer. Like you're Wow, that's a that's yeah. A, that feels like you made a movie whenever you're saying that it takes that long to go through this whole uh, post production process and release. Well, you know, I've it's taken me a long time to actually get this to a place where I feel you know good about it, and, and it's weird because it's not. I'm not trying to be a perfectionist mm-hmm. about it. I really am not. In fact, you know, when I'm working on stuff, I'll like track some. I'm super lazy when it comes to it. I'll track something and I'll be like. That's good enough. All right, fine. Move on. <laughs> uh, or I could, I'll fix it later. And then I end up not fixing it later. And I, I listen to the demo and I think, you know what? That's pretty good. It's fine. So I'm not, I'm being pretty lazy about it. But at the same time, I'm only lazy about it if it's already conveying the feeling that I want it to convey. You know, if it's not conveying that feeling, then, you know, mm. I, I'll do retakes and all that stuff. And um, for also, I'm doing it all here in my little studio and there's a lot of stuff that needs to be re-recorded. That's just that's another reason why I'm just taking my time because it's I don't care what my guitar sounds like necessarily because I'm going to re-record it. I don't care what my vocals sound like because I'm going to re-record them. Yeah. So it's just getting the idea down and then finishing the tracking as well as I can, then finishing the tracking in December and then figuring out how I want to release it, probably like one song at a time kind of thing. And so, yeah, we'll f- figure it out. But I don't want to rush it because yeah. it's taken me three years to get here. So, jeez. And is it entirely played on the spoons? No, you know, so I mean, if we're going to talk about it, uh, I about two years ago, I got a keyboard that one of my good friends gave me. He just gave it to me. And for whatever reason, I was playing with it, just figuring it out. And I noticed a MIDI port on the back and I didn't I'd never really looked at a MIDI port before. And I thought, what the hell is that thing for? You know, because I've been an analog musician my whole life. Play guitar, play piano, play drums. 
but a, a digital in, instrument was like completely out of my comfort zone. I had no idea what to do. And then, and then I thought, oh, synthesizers. Oh man, that's pretty cool. All of a sudden I just thought a synthesizer was cool. I don't know why I hadn't done music for a long time. And then it just went down this rabbit hole. So a lot of this, and I got a bunch of synthesizers and stuff. And so I've been writing on them a lot. So the sound is way different from anything that I've done before. And so that's another reason why it's taken me so long. Cause I'm doing these things and I don't know if it's good. I just know how I, if I like it or not, you know, but for somebody who's a synthesis, they might, you know, listen to it and think, Oh, I know exactly what he's doing and it's nothing new and whatever. And I'm not necessarily trying to reinvent the wheel, but I, you know, I want to like it. And so it takes me a long time to figure out, do I even like this? Cause I've never heard it before or I'm having to make it from scratch. I'm literally making sounds from nothing. And it's a whole new world. Well, know? it's interesting how much time and space really is necessary for the creative process because like, you don't know if you like it yet because it's still so new because you haven't given it that time and that space uh, to sit. And so sometimes you have to step away for a while and come back to it. Um, there are times when it's really easy to rush through a project because you know exactly what you want, you know exactly how it's going to feel. And then there are times when you are experimenting and you don't know if this is exactly what you want yet. Um, and it might feel really nice today, but you step away for a week, work on something else and then come back to it. And suddenly it feels like an alien thing. You're just like, oh, wait, no, I see all the all the holes, all the flaws the simplicity, maybe it's too simplistic, or maybe I tried to do too much and it's complex for the sake of being complex. Uh, but those things you can't really see yet until you've had time, um, to process it and, and step away from the, having your hand on it. As soon as you take your hand away from it. And this is always really fun for me when I'm working on something. The fact that I really love grabbing my roommate, grabbing you and saying, Hey, can you watch something real quick? And I, I, I rarely ask for feedback. It's usually I need to sit in the same room while someone else is watching this. So now that I can empathetically watch it through their eyes and say, oh, I need that. I need that. I need that. Uh, suddenly the timing feels much more uh, precious because I'm, I'm so much more intense and I'm watching it as if this is a final thing, right? I'm, you feel the eye of judgment on you all of a sudden. Yeah. And no one's going to judge you better than you. Um, and so all those things, I think, kind of coalesce the the time and uh, feedback process is all really precious to me uh, whenever I'm working on something and and knowing when to use what uh, is it's a delicate balance. Yeah. I mean, that when you said that, it, 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 it I've heard that saying a thousand times in my life, but it actually kind of like hit me a little bit more at home. When you, when you said, uh, uh, nobody's going to judge you better than you. That's, that's so true. Cause you know, if you're lying to yourself, hmm. you know, you know, if you're like, like, oh, this could be better. Or if you think, no, that's perfect. Like, you, you know, and somebody else might have suggestions, but those are suggestions from their opinion, not necessarily, you know, a judgment on you that you have to ad ad abide by. But if you're, if your heart and your brain are telling you this could be better, that's different. You know, like I could tell you, Wes, this is great, but it could be better. You could either agree or not and do something with it or not. But if your brain and your heart are telling you that, that's a completely different thing. So, yeah. It, anyway, good point. Uh, and you're doing that, too. You're doing that with your your script right now. We were just talking about it. Yeah, it's it's a weird process as I'm kind of going through 
uh, writing, rewriting, um, you know, they, uh, it's familiar in the acting community, the acting community to say that acting is reacting and for <laughs> the first few times. And this goes to my, uh, inability to comprehend things easily. Sometimes, um, the first time this for several times I heard that, I think it might've been Tom Cruise. I heard saying it and, I just kept hearing reacting, not as a, uh, another form of the word reaction. I kept hearing reacting as in to do it again. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And it was just really confusing. I'm like, why is that good acting? <laughs> why is maybe it's about, you know, repetition and, you know, Meisner or something. Uh, but it, in fact, you know, you just talking about being able to react and respond. And so writing in that same sense, uh, or in, maybe in the complete opposite sense, uh, is just doing it again and again and again, um, and being willing to delete a scene and rewrite it and see what comes out this time, um, to rethink it. And so it's been this weird process of yes, sitting on it, letting someone else read it, getting feedback. We sat down to that table read we talked about a couple episodes ago, but then there's also this, this process of, I, what, what's my, my metaphor that I'm working with? What's my symbolism that I'm working with? Okay, great. I'm going to start with that and write. And then I'm going to go back through and say, okay, I wrote all my symbolism, but man, the story is weird. <laughs> like I need to, I need to ground the story some. And so then I'll go through and rewrite with the idea that just make the story work. And then it's like, okay, the story's working. I think I lost some of my symbolism. <laughs> and so it's just this weird iterative process of, going back and forth and saying, am I telling the big macro story that I'm trying to tell? And also does this feel close and personal and intimate and all these characters acting out of their own self-interest, uh, which is what humanity does, right? Uh, we're always acting based on what we think is right in the moment. And whenever you put four people in a room who are all acting in their own interest, different things happen. Um, and you need to honor each one of those characters so that you have dimensionality. And it's just not one character is there to serve as some kind of, you know, MacGuffin for another character. Right. And that's how you get these one dimensional yeah. evil characters that don't feel like they really exist in the real world. Uh, it's a weird process and it's, it's fun um, and frustrating. <laughs> and, and exhausting. Yeah. You just cut a bunch of, a bunch of pages from your, from your script 20 my very very first draft was a 50 page script and i was like this is not a movie yet uh this is a really long short film and then uh as i kind of go went back through i was like oh i could flesh this out i could flesh this out eventually i landed at around 85 86 pages and now that i'm going back through figuring out my pacing making sure all the tone kind of flows in the way that i want i've gone through and deleted almost 20 pages rewrote a few pages and it's it's this weird process of this scene doesn't need to be four pages. It could be two pages. Um, not because I necessarily want it to be two pages, you know, as some kind of arbitrary determination, but as I'm working through the scene, I'm like, Oh, this scene plays much cleaner and better. The pacing works much better if I do X, Y, and Z. And it just so happens to, you know, cut it in half and then cutting out a whole other chunk because I'm like, Oh, I like this other idea. But if I do this other idea, I'm, I don't need these other scenes now. Okay. Well, that's okay. That's fine. You know, there were some interesting things happening in those scenes. They weren't just, you know, thrown at the wall, but this other thing is much stronger. It, it creates a better experience, I think, for the viewer. And so, yeah, it's a lot of uh, fine tuning that just suddenly I'm down 20 pages, which I'm fine with. Like I might only need 65 pages to, to hit the runtime that I'm wanting to hit as well as all the emotional beats that I'm wanting to hit. 
It's I'm zero interested in arbitrary run times. Like I, I want, I know the kind of tight intimate feeling. And I've been really into a lot of these 80, 85 minute films lately. I went and watched sharp stick the other day, this new Lena Dunham film. And I loved it, but it's intimate. It's very close. There's not a lot of characters and same thing with this other uh, French film that I saw, Petite Maman, uh, that is, again, very few characters. And so I'm realizing the fewer characters you have, the less runtime you need. It's kind of like podcasting. When it's just us two, we can have a nice, you know, 45 minute to hour 10 conversation. Uh, but if you have three people, it needs to probably be closer to an hour and 30. Four people, you're getting closer to two hours. In order to let mm. all these people have space to breathe and exist, you need more runtime. The bigger it gets, the more characters you have. Yeah. And so that's what I'm I'm trying to respect is, do I need X amount of runtime to let these characters breathe? No. So make it tighter, make it more focused, and let's get to the heart of the story much quicker and allow these characters to have their, their moment in the sun, so to speak. <laughs> that's awesome, man. That's awesome. I can't wait to... I can't wait to see how it feels yeah, reading it. Yeah, same. I'm excited yeah. to show you my finished uh, cut and premiere that as I'm building out the story, I'm recording all the, the parts as we were talking about last week. And that'll be a fun process too, to see what it feels like in an edit, even if it's just kind of this bastardized version of it. I think it'll still tell us a lot about what we're making. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. Very excited. Nice. Very excited. I mean, just a little bit that you sent me before was like so fun to watch. <laughs> sent me like a little five minute yeah. beginning of it. And I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be so cool. <laughs> awesome. Nice. Okay. So thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, today we are going to uh, be reviewing Pan's Labyrinth, uh, Guillermo del, del Toro's uh, uh, little film there. So if you haven't seen it, please pause the episode uh, because we're going to spoil a lot of stuff in it. For sure. We'll talk about a bunch of things, but I think we'll focus a lot on the story and writing. Uh, I want to look at the rule of threes, setting up tension and ask whether or not this story is a metaphor. Uh, we'll look at all of that and other such stuff and things and stuff. And is this pronounced phalangist? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I can only think of Phoebe and friends. It's a phalange. Um, I, right? I, I have no idea. Uh, phalangist? Phalangist? Sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. And a quick synopsis of the film. In the phalangist Spain of 1944, the bookish young stepdaughter of a sadistic army officer escapes into an eerie but captivating fantasy world. Written and directed by Guillermo del Toro. Cinematography by Guillermo Navarro. It's featuring Ivana Baquero as Ophelia, Maribel Verdu as Mercedes, Ariadna Gill as Carmen the mom, Sergei Lopez as Captain Vidal, Doug Jones as Fano, Alex Angulo as do the Doctor, and Cesar Vea as Serrano.
this man this this movie is is one for the books what i'm i'm very sure sure you've, you've seen this you know at least once or twice does it rewatching it are you reminded of uh certain things in terms of i forgot this scene oh my god um or does it play exactly you know to memory um what's the experience of remembering it versus watching it yeah it's a great it's a great way to put it because at first i didn't know what i remembered of it i knew i remembered feelings of it Mm. and little it's kind of like you know your earliest memories you don't remember everything but you remember like a split second or a split instant you know like and that's kind of like obviously the the monster or you know like the the eye guy guy and uh you know fawn the pale man yeah, yeah um i remember those but a lot of the stuff around that i didn't remember and it's, it's particularly the just constant feeling of dread like like they they did such a good job of making me hate this guy the um, the officer uh was it captain the, yeah, the captain yeah captain vidal uh, making me hate him. I mean, it was just, and they set it up perfectly. I mean, you can tell already he's kind of a jerk, like right when they get there, but they set it up perfectly by having him kill those two people and then finding out, oh, they were hunting rabbits instantly. So I already hate the guy. You can tell he doesn't care anything about uh, Ophelia and uh, or her mom. And they just continue to prove that throughout the entirety of the film there is no moment where he ever has any kind of record like you know like recognition of oh he's a you know like i'm i'm terrible even if he thinks he says to uh, mercedes oh you must think i'm a monster but he's almost proud of it when he says that and then i found myself you know in after she does the the first of the three uh, requirements and goes back to Fano instantly. I didn't trust him because I didn't remember the end. I didn't remember, you know, how I remembered a lot of it, but not if he was a, a ended up being bad or not or something. But even before he really even did anything, the second time she goes to see him instantly, I was like, don't trust him. Don't trust him. I don't trust this guy Fano. And, uh, and that feeling was there. They did a perfect job of making me not trust him in this moment. Right. And so then the next, you know, after she messes up the second one and, and everything, uh, you know, he becomes scary to me and he was scary at least at a little bit at first. Cause just cause, you know, uh, visually he's kind of scary or he's just different, but he's still loving. He's like, please don't be afraid, you know, and, and he's calm and quiet or whatever, but he, the, the performance of him from that point until the end where she's actually at the palace it was brilliantly played because I don't trust him at all. And that's the point. The point is like, she's got to not really trust him or think that there's something up so that she can become like, like become sure of herself in her decision-making where at the end she chooses her brother over, you know, whatever. So anyway, I thought that everything was brilliantly played. Mercedes Maribel Verdu is incredible in this movie for me. Uh, I mean, obviously Ophelia of Ivana. Yeah. Vaccaro. I mean, okay. She's number one 
in this movie, she's absolutely unbelievable. I believed every single moment she was on screen, which is so hard for little kids to do, especially when they're acting with stuff that's not in the room, you know? Well, right. I mean, you know, not only like the the bug, the bug and the fairies. Yeah. And, uh, so anyway, she did. And when she laid on her mother's belly and was talking to her brother, that moment killed me, uh, where she was like begging him not to hurt her. But then Maribel also, Mercedes also did an amazing job too, because uh, of a lot of scenes, but particularly at the end when she's holding uh, Ophelia and Ophelia dies and her, her scream or her cry was so agonizing and, and, and beautiful at the same time. Anyway, I just thought everybody was fantastic in it. I liked the writing. I, I, I liked that it was I don't always like films. Let me how to say how to say this. I don't always like films that just have a random story and add el- random elements to them that have nothing to do with anything that I have in my head already. <laughs> if that makes sense, like I don't know the if this if this is about folklore, I don't know anything about it, right? So let's so in my brain, he's making this story up completely out of his his own brain, and so a lot of times when when that happens, I feel like oh, you're just interjecting random. <laughs> things to have it be more of an interesting story and that it gets annoying to me uh i hope i'm conveying this in a way that makes sense in this case i don't know if it's about folklore or not but whether it is or not i like it like i actually like the 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 random things that he interjects the the draw the door with the chalk kind of thing the uh the bug that turns into fairies the the guy that's just sitting at the table you know, of food and not moving, you know, the, uh, anyway, but really to me, the whole film felt a lot like a girl's and and I don't know if this is right or not felt a lot like a girl's way to, to dis like, um, disengage or what, what's the word? Disassociate, but thank you. Thank you. That's the word. Disassociate herself with the terrible things happening in her life. And so, you know, we could say Fano is real or we could say that maybe he's not because at the end he's not there. Like she's the only one that can see him. And maybe it's because she's the princess and this is a real story or whatever, or maybe it's in her head and she's like, honestly, and she's making it up to disassociate herself from, or yeah, from all the terrible things that are happening. And that completely makes sense, especially for a child to do. Um, Mm -hmm. It would be wonderful if adults could do that too, but in terrible situations, but they can't always do that. But kids can tap into this kind of thing. And, and so it's totally logical to be able to, to look at this and say she was, she was, that was her way of surviving, giving herself these tasks to, to accomplish throughout all this terrible things that are, that are going on, gives her a reason to keep going, Hmm. you know, gives, so she's able to then control if her mom feels, you know, like gets like heals or like gets better from her sickness by putting this random thing under the bed. Right. And when he pulls, when, when, uh, the captain pulls that thing out from under the bed and holds it up, it's not wiggling. It's not like alive or anything. And the only time that it is moving is when she sees it moving. So she's able to control that with her mom, you know, and like give herself hope there and, and in, it has other tasks that she has to do. And she's just, it's, it's her way of getting through. And I thought that that was very beautiful, whether that's a thing or not, I don't know. But to me, it sounded, it seemed like that because her dying in the end, and I didn't even notice that, honestly, 
until the end when she died. I, I wasn't see, seeing that throughout like, oh, this is her way of disassociating. I, I was just like, sorry. And then at the end when she passes, it was, and she goes to the, to her father. She goes to her father, right? Comes, and it was when the mother says, come sit by your father, sit next to your father. It was like, oh, this is, this is, you know, a way for her to escape and then, and then deliverance of her to heaven. Okay. I get it. It's so beautiful. It's so such a beautiful way to tell a story like that without being polarizing of, of that. It's not religion. Hmm. It's just something that happened. I don't know. I thought it was beautiful and wonderful. So do you have a strong opinion or, uh, do you lean? Uh, it doesn't have to be a strong one, but do you lean yeah. either way in terms of is it real? Uh, is is the fairy tale real? Does she actually go, um, or is it purely just a figment of, like you said, her her coping mechanism? Uh, that's. I mean, that is a that in there lies the question. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Right. I think uh, I'm going to be glass half full because I think you could look at it either way i'm going to be glass half full and just say because and just say that that i think it's it's real because it's real to her Mm. that's that's what i would say because the the little creature under the bed moving was real to her her mom got better uh or was starting to get better and even the doctor was surprised about that yeah oh and then her you know actually going through the door and this creature coming after her like yeah i think that she really felt like that was real so yes it was it was real, I think. Nice. For me, I I have two different versions of there's what I experience when I'm watching the movie. And when I get to the end, I get really excited about her being in the, uh, the kingdom with her with her father um, and mom again. And then it cuts to her in her eye. We can see the, the light leave her eye. Mm-hmm. And that's when I realized, you know, she died, right? It, so for me, when I'm watching the movie, it's not real. Mm-hmm. It's just a fairy tale. But the other version of me, a week later, or a year later, remembers just her going into the kingdom. Yeah. And it's real. Yeah. In my memory, it's always real. In the in the moment, it's never real. That's a great way to say it. Yes. It's a weird you know, thing that he's able to kind of have his cake and eat it too, Guillermo del Toro, by just you know, creating a feeling, creating an emotion, creating a want in the audience because we all want it to be real. We don't want her to live in this world where she's murdered by a, a psychotic, you know, uh, captain, a fascist, you know, dictator. But we also, uh, as they reiterate, you know, throughout the film, uh, are adults and we understand that, you know, life isn't a fairy tale. And so it's this interesting kind of back and forth of whether or not what we're experiencing is uh, is good or not. And he does a great job of introducing so much brutality um, that it makes you, the viewer, want to retreat into a fairy tale. And I think that's, it's a, it's a really beautiful thing. Um, and just as an idea, like I am, it's a weird thing to go into. I saw this in theaters and this was 2006. So this is the same year as, uh, the film we did last uh, last week, um, Children of Men. And so that year was magic, man, because these two films come out in the same year. It's just like, you know, you as an audience walking out of a movie don't always know how good a movie is. Like, it's so rare to Great walk point. out of a movie and say, 
this is going to live for the next 50 years as one of the greatest films ever made. Yeah. And walking out of Pan's Labyrinth, all I knew, man, that was amazing. I saw my buddy Juwan, um, and we were just like, whoa, he did that. Like, that was, that was fantastic. What's for dinner, right? <laughs> like, it's just... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it's not until, you know, here we are 16 years later and I'm just like, this is really one of the greatest movies ever made. And I couldn't see that in the moment. Um, it, that's time and space again, operating. Uh, you don't know until, until much later after the fact, but even in just thinking up all these things, the story alone is really good to set it in, you know, um, you know, at the end of the, the world war two era and, have all these really fascinating ideas that test themselves. Like you said, the chalk, I'm a very tactile person. Um, and so thinking up really magical, interesting things to do with very simple objects that could exist in 1944, it's easy to come up with magical, you know, video games or whatever. in and, you know, post 2000 era, post 1980 era. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. but to come up with really interesting, visually smart ideas that you can pull off, you know, uh, in World War II, that's that's more tricky. Hey, do something with fantasy and make it in an era where you have very little objects to to play with. And so the idea of chalk and uh, the toad and these rocks um, and how to tell all these interesting stories, the the pale man, right? The, the crazy monster with the eyes in his hands. That's just genius. Um, and then using something as simple as food as a, as your, um, you know, temptation, like all these ideas, I just, it's one of those frustrating things where you see an artist, uh, who is a master in his craft doing something. And you're just like, how, how, because it's so obvious that I could never see it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's the, the beauty of simplicity that I'm always floored with. I'm always, I, I always think of our friend, Alyssa, when I watch Pan's Labyrinth. Not necessarily because she reminds me of like Ophelia or anyone else in, the, but I know that she's a very tactile person as well, and she's good with her ideas. She's one of the most creative people I know, um, and the way that she creates interesting contrast through very simple ideas that, at a glance, you get it. Yeah, that's so hard to create very sticky ideas that are very easy to digest for the viewer. Um, and she's great at that. And Guillermo del Toro is obviously, uh, excellent at that as well. And so just watching this from a, a, a writing standpoint, I'm just like effing hell, man. How did you, how did you think this stuff up? And then how'd you execute it? That was one of the interesting things I, as I was re doing, uh, some research for the last episode for, uh, children of men, I pulled up this old visual effects article and I was like, okay, this has the information that I need to add to the show notes. And then by some sheer coincidence at the bottom of the article, it was like next article is about Pan's Labyrinth. And I was like, Whoa, okay, I'll pull that up. Uh, I didn't read the whole thing. I didn't want to spoil the magic for me. I guess I skimmed it to see, is there anything in here I might find interesting. And early in the article, there's a, a note about the visual effects, not the effects in and of themselves, but of how he was able to get it made. Cause this had like a $19 million budget, which is peanuts, even in 2006. I mean, this isn't like, you know, this wasn't made in 1944, <laughs> 19000000 million in 1944 is like billions or whatever. 19 million in 2006, not a lot, like even uh, small 
you know, ambitious films had like 40, $50 million to play with. This is a $19 million film that should have had 40 or 50 million. Um, and so how, how did he get it made though? And so he partnered with a visual effects company called cafe effects to produce the film. And what that means is normally right with visual effects or any, anything like if you're making a film, you say, Hey, Weta, Hey, cafe effects, Hey, milk, whoever, you know, we want to do these visual effects. How much? And they say, you know, 10 million. And you're like, cool, here's your 10 million. Let's get going. They didn't have that kind of money. So cafe effects, he went to them and said, um, you know, as he was doing some uh, pre-production, they were like, what you need to do is partner with someone. Um, and I forget who this conversation with was, uh, it's in the article, but it ended up being that he's going to partner with cafe effects. They'll own part of the film. And which also means that they're helping finance the film. And so instead of charging him money for all the effects, it's like, I'm sure he paid them some in order to, you know, get his, the, the crew paid, but it also meant that they would come out of pocket to help finance, you know, portions of it as well. So it became a partnership. And I think that's why this looks as incredible as it does. If, because certain things happened on set, Hey, we have these practical animatronic, you know, fairies or something, and they're not working. We'll figure it out in post. Like let's do some placeholder stuff, uh, get some plates and we'll, we'll, we'll do some visual effects in post and, and make it work. And so I'm just blown away. Um, and I feel like when that happens, that's almost always been the best visual effects. When you look at this, obviously this is some of the it holds up today. Like there's not a lot in this film on the visual effects front that I'm like, Oh, that's, that doesn't work. It works as well as anything anyone's putting out today. I feel the same way with like Ender's game. They also partnered. Um, I want to say a similar thing happened with life of Pi. Like these films have the best visual effects because you know, the, the visual effects companies were themselves invested in the process. You can't always do that though, because that's also how, rhythm and hue gets bankrupted right it's it, it's a weird process and you know people get the short end of the stick a lot yeah because for something like that you know if the movie doesn't do as well then the the vfx house has lost a lot they it's a it's it's a bigger deal for them right because yes. their only source of income is on actually doing work right so they, they do work they get paid for the work if I'm going to do the work and not get paid for it, I'm going to get money from the from ticket sales or whatever from streams, and that doesn't come in, then you're just kind of SOL on all the work that you've done. And when we talk about the VFX for films, it is months, years of work for dozens or hundreds of people, depending on the film. So yeah, I, I totally get that. Why? Because I was sitting there thinking. Uh, thinking, why doesn't this happen more often? Like that, this uh, it's brilliant. Well, they don't make Pan's Labyrinth every year. That's right. You know? <laughs> That's right. So, yeah. Yeah. And so I was just really impressed with the quality as well as the process. Um, that's that's really fascinating. Yeah. In terms of other like cinematography, I guess full screen, right? Or uh, uh, kind of HD. I think it's sixteen by nine, if not pretty close to it. Maybe like a one eight five aspect ratio. But a lot of mediums, a lot of close ups. Uh, and I find that interesting because to some degree, this might feel a natural fit for widescreen, right? It's fantasy, it's a heightened sense of reality. And so widescreen kind of makes sense. But going with something uh, with a taller format, I know Guillermo wanted to spend a lot of time in people's emotions 
but he also wanted you to feel immersed in the uh, in the environment. And so I'm guessing this taller format allowed for both of those things to be true, that we could put the camera closer to our actors without, you know, trimming out the uh, the the actual set. And, you know, you still get a sense of immersion in the era, uh, the textures, um, you know, it's fairly deep depth of field. And so you can see the, the, the locations pretty well, which is important. And you all you, you're able to do all of that while also still being very close to your actors to see what they're experiencing, how they're feeling and just living inside their headspace. Uh, and so, yeah, I thought the aspect ratio was a really interesting use of that. And when you're doing a, a period piece that's beautiful like this, I think it's important to be able to to see as much as possible. Um, and so I think it kind of gave him the best of both worlds. A lot. This is a very blue film and very moody, very unsafe. Uh, there's certainly a lot of day for night, you know, that helps let you see the environment that they're kind of in this forest and it's wet and rainy. Uh, but there's also even daytime is very dark. The daytime often feels um, like nighttime. And so in some sense, you feel lost throughout the film about what, when we are. Uh, there's only a handful of shots in the daytime where it's very obviously daytime. But there's other scenes like there's a, that battle uh, up the hill that has to be in daytime. Uh, there's no lights. There's no flashlights or anything. But it's still very dark and it feels like you're in the forest. And I think that's all a part of the ambience of what we're doing in this film, right? It's, it's moody, it's unsafe, it's hard to see. And I think making things a little harder to see also makes it kind of coalesces a, a, a bit with the story of it's hard to see what's true and what's false. I think it plays into a lot of the, the emotional elements by staging it visually that way. Yeah. That's awesome. Did yeah. you did you feel that too in terms of did it ever occur to you whether or not you're in daytime or nighttime or did you just kind of so immersed in the story you weren't really thinking about those things? I wasn't really thinking about it, honestly. Uh, it, it just either was day or it wasn't. I mean, I did notice the blue um, a lot, but it wasn't like, it felt very pointed. It felt like this is, it wasn't something that I just, that jumped out at me. I just, because I think we do this podcast and we talk about that kind of stuff is why I would notice it not uh, you know, uh, right. not because it was something that, that jumped out. It was very much more obvious in that scene, specifically on the hillside where that it was day, but also they're inside a lot too, you know? So I just don't really think about it. You just, it's weird in a film like this, you just kind of have a feeling, you know, you're not, you know, thinking it's day or night. You just kind of have a feeling yeah. of day or a feeling of night. I never felt like it was daytime when we were in his chambers, the the captain's chambers, it might have been. I never felt like it was daytime. There are no windows. There's no light coming in. No like natural light. It's all unnaturally lit. So places like that. And then like when he she saw Fawn or Fauno, you know, that felt like night. Uh and I'm pretty sure it was, but usually it felt like dusk unless it felt like day. Yeah. You know, for me. You know. So yeah. Nice. Going into some of the story and writing. I loved how it opens. I mean, it opens on the, the text that kind of sets you. And it's one of those things you're not necessarily going to remember that, but uh, you don't memorize the text and like, okay, this is instead it kind of makes an imprint so that when you run into some of these story elements later, it feels familiar and it kind of reinforces it and you kind of get it. It's quick and it's clever, obviously setting us in 1944 Spain 
Uh, you're not going to forget that because it's so quickly reinforced visually. But the other stuff about, you know, this is uh, in an era where they're trying to smush out the the resistance or whatever. What we're hearing is Ophelia's hard breathing. We don't know what we're what it is. We're just hearing this this breathy thing happening. And then we cut to her bleeding on the ground, looking into the camera, and then we enter her eyes and into this uh voiceover with a fairy tale, and which is of course very much where we uh end the film. And, but by the time we get to the end of the film, we completely forget about that opening sequence. Um and so the 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 punch in the gut is still fresh whenever they hit you. Yeah. And of course, it finishes that whole opening sequence with her looking into the fairy tale book, looking at the silhouette of fairies and this little girl. Um, and so to your point earlier, you know, it very much is opening up the door to whichever lady and the tiger kind of storytelling you choose uh, the ending that you want. Um, it's it's both there. Um, but we'll we'll see if we can cement it at all um, later. The other thing. Uh, is it that I find interesting is the rule of threes that they keep coming back to in the film. Uh, so normally we're used to hearing comedy comes in threes, right? Uh, and that's kind of a, a famous phrase and even like Rick and Morty makes punchlines about it. Uh, and so I think what's important to understand is patterns come in twos, right? Uh, you set, you establish a rhythm or a pattern by the first two things. And then the third thing allows you to break it. So in this in this film, like we have two grapes, right? She's eating two grapes at the table. Um, there's no third. Uh, the, there's two medicine vials, right? They're, we're establishing a, a pattern. The doctor, of course, um, it, it's what finds them out. And so we're able to establish some some patterns through just setting things up. And so you break the pattern with the third thing for either in comedy, that's for comedic effect. That contrast creates a, a punch. And in dramas, right, it creates a dramatic contrast. Uh, it provides that contrast uh, by creating the odd one out, right? And so let's look at some of the, the the good examples here. And so in the Battle of the Forest, right, when they kind of kill this small band of resistant uh, rebels, uh, Serrano, this is after that the little scene where uh, the captain is putting his gun up to the head of whatever this guy is, and he keeps putting his hand on it. And he kind of keeps tossing it. Oh my it. God. That's that. a brutal, brutal scene. He's just playing with them. And then he shoots them. We cut to uh, a wider shot of Serrano. Serrano watches that happen. And then he starts looking at guys on the ground. We just kind of follow his face. He starts shooting. Bang. Right. And then he moves on, shoots another shoulder uh, soldier. And then he moves on. He's preparing to shoot a third guy. And then he stops. Captain, this one is still alive, right? And this is where they find the stuttering rebel, uh, which we will come back to very quickly. Um, but what I what I think he's using that for, because nothing is particularly special about this. I think it's just a good dramatic principle in order to pace the scene. Because if this guy looks down and suddenly says, hey, this guy's still alive, it works. It's not bad. But by shooting, we can start to build a little bit of stakes, a little bit of rhythm, um, and it just allows for a better dramatic pacing to feel good. I mean, it's just a it's, it's a nice way to feather out the story without rushing it. And similar, we go to uh, the the stuttering soldier, you know, a few scenes later, and the captain says, "Hey, tell you what, I'll make you a deal. If you can count to three without stuttering, I'll let oh. you walk free." Right. And he, he starts off well, uno, dos, one, two. 
and it builds hope before he gets crushed. Right. Uh, oh, such a shame. How, how, how many, uh, how many of us out there counted to three? Yes. Like yeah. said three, three for him. <laughs> right. Yeah. Brutal. And so the rule of three is again, building a nice rhythm, building hope um, and dashing us on the, on the rocks. Same thing with the uh, Serrano's death to a degree. Uh, this is a little different, a little less obvious. Um, and this is me kind of inserting my, my own view into it because those other things are very bang, bang, bang. Um, this is less so. And so I love when Serrano gets shot, right? Uh, this is the guy who his second in command um, and they're chasing Mercedes into the forest, right? They've kind of discovered, oh, she's, uh, she's a traitor or whatever. And she's running away. They're all on their horses and chasing after her. And then she gets surrounded. Now, at, up to this point, we've watched the stuttering rebel die. We just watched the doctor die. And now they're going to kill her. And so we've kind of established a rhythm of lose, lose, and we're expecting another loss. Um, and if you include the mother in that, um, that works as well. Though I, I don't think that fits into the whole idea of rebels. Like we're watching, we've seen two rebels die in a row. We're expecting a third one uh, to also get capped off. Uh, and then Serrano gets blasted. Bang, 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 bang. They light him up right as he's about to kill her. And it's so good because there's no pause. There's not like, bang, dramatic look down. Oh, you got me, partner. You know, it's just instead yeah. it's a relentless gunfire. And it's so nice because we've earned a good victory by now. Uh, there's no need to draw it out. Give us a little satisfaction. Give us this one moment. Uh, and so it's just bang, 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 bang. Um, and he goes down. It's very, very satisfying because good God, we could use it. <laughs> yes. And and at that point, I don't think that we know if her brother is alive. Mm either because of the the battle that just happened and everybody died except for the one person who she hoped was her brother that wasn't her brother so we're yeah so good yes and then still on the rule of threes here uh the tests the tests are interesting um in terms of rule of three uh pattern making uh because the first two tests were about obedience obeying doing what we're telling you to do right the third test was about disobeying and doing the right thing, even when it comes from your authority. And so the, the first two tests, like go under the tree, right? Um, kill the frog. Second test, open a door, go to this room, don't eat anything, get, choose the right door, right? Open the right door and get and retrieve whatever it was, uh, the knife, and then come out. And the third test was, okay, now you need to hand over your, your brother so that we can kill him to open up the portal. Well, she clearly needs to disobey. And so they've established a pattern. And what's really good about this one is we don't know whether or not we just assume she screwed that that was really the wrong result. Um, and it's a very satisfying moment because of how well they establish, like you said, this guy is a trustworthy guy, but now he's kind of sketchy, the fawn and the fact that she needs to do what he says in order to get the result that she wants. And now she's turning it away and we know that she's doing the right thing, but we don't know that it's the right thing to him, to the fawn, to the, the father. Uh, and so it's a really fun test. And I love that, you know, it becomes the right result, uh, which they establish. And I love it's a it's kind of buried and it's really smart, but it's very clearly there because they establish that as a principle 
with the doctor when he killed the stuttering rebel, right? Um, mm-hmm. the, the captain says he disobeyed the captain's orders about keep him alive, make sure he stays. And the captain's like, why didn't you obey me? And the doctor says to obey just like that for the sake of obeying without questioning. That's something only people like you can do, Captain. And it's there like 15, 20 minutes before she takes that test. Uh, and so there's clearly a principle that they've established that you are just never going to recognize. I mean, even yeah. on repeat viewings, you don't recognize it. You really have to think it out. I've seen this movie, I don't know, close to 10 times probably. And that's never occurred to me until this final watch when I was literally writing down everything. And it's just such a beautiful uh, idea uh a philosophy that that they're establishing into this world that Ophelia is just it's innate and that's kind of the nice thing about kids they uh they can be little shits but they can also be very principled and they they believe you whenever you tell them right is right and wrong is wrong and it's not until you prove to them that you're lying that they start changing those opinions in their lives um and so I love that you know she's very much a, a principled uh person and yeah. On that same idea, they also kind of have a rule of repeats in play where it's not a rule of three. It's just uh, I talk about rule of repeats a lot because normally it's we'll see one thing happen one way and then we'll see it happen the opposite way. So they'll set up, right? The gun goes off one time and then the gun doesn't go off the next time. Uh, and so that's kind of normally the way a lot of films work. They don't usually take advantage of the rule of threes very often, in my opinion. But they do a roll of repeats here with the the torture speech whenever he has the the stuttering uh, rebel, you know, and he's about to torture him. He gives this big, long speech about these are the tools of the trade, things we learned on the job along the way, blah, blah, blah. Um, And then he goes to work on this guy. The second time he's doing it, he has Mercedes. He's tied her up. He's turned his back to her because he's got all the confidence in the world. Literally, the thing that she just told him. You underestimate women. (laughs) He's doing right away. He's doing it again. He turns his back on her and she cuts herself free. And before he can get a sentence into his speech, like she stabs him and then she like cuts his face open and it's just beautiful. Um, It's a really good way to interrupt uh, what we know to be a familiar pattern just because of how well it was delivered the first time around. Um, You don't need to do that three times. And we certainly couldn't sit through it, you know, three times. dude yeah that and that scene when so she stabs him once and and like really bad in the back then he turns around she stabs him again oh that's right when he when when she stabbed him the first time i thought keep going i was i just it was i said it out loud keep going um and then she stabs him in the front and i didn't remember if she killed him or not so and then she sticks it in his mouth and i was i was i was thinking okay that's it but she doesn't end up killing him and I was so frustrating for me. It's like, why are you going to let this guy live? You know, like, why just cut open his mouth? Like, really, <laughs> it just drives me. It was very, that's the one thing that annoyed me the, the hell out of this movie was that moment. It was like the woman at home alone, you know, running from somebody at, uh, that's broken into the house and she runs upstairs. Right. Like, why <laughs> do, that is ridiculous. Why not kill the guy right then? So, I don't know. Doesn't it doesn't push the narrative forward? I guess yeah. if she does. <laughs> yeah, so. I think that we could certainly sit and make excuses for why she wouldn't do that. The story, the film, doesn't really do a great job of explaining that. Um, it just 
it just happens, right? I think yeah. she, maybe she's just not the type who wants to murder. Um, totally. And totally that's fine. That. I, I get it. But mm-hmm. it's not really spelled out or delineated. And it's still fine. Like you said, it's there to push the story forward. Um, not to, to end all pain and suffering. Yeah. So there's a, a couple of other things that they're doing. I love the way they set up the dress right? The, the muddy dress sequence is really good. Um, there's a lot of tension there and I love the way they just kind of set up and execute that, that sequence because we first introduced the dress. Look at this. It's beautiful. It's brand new and you're going to look beautiful for the captain. And so we know that the intention is for her to show this off for the captain. Now it's been like, two minutes since we've seen how evil the captain is with that bottle sequence. The wine bottle is one of the most brutal scenes of all time. It's just a creative way to just demonstrate. There's, we talk a little bit about kick the dog storytelling, right? Where you want to show how bad your villain is and you have them kind of kick a dog, right? Oh, look at this guy. We love dogs. So we hate him. And it's very simple. And most films kind of do a bad job of using that idea. Guillermo del Toro executes it to perfection because that's very much kick the dog storytelling, but it's so it's, there are no bad ideas or only bad executions. <laughs> and this is pun intended, a really good execution. Uh, it's just him bludgeoning this guy to death with the bottom of a wine bottle. Um, and like you said earlier, he discovers very quickly that they were innocent and I just love how he doesn't care. There is nothing in his demeanor. Instead, it's like, hey, maybe you should do your job better. And I won't have to do stuff like this. Like none of it's a reflection of him. Uh, it's it's all just him and his place in the world and how righteous he is no matter what. That's what's ma- what makes it so brutal is finding the bun- the rabbit and then just being mad at his, uh, you know, or being annoyed, not even mad. Right. Just- just annoyed at his guy who didn't find the rabbit in the first place. And now you got to call me down here to do this to these guys. It's wasting like, my time. <laughs> yeah. Wasting my time. That's what made it so brutal. Oh. I mean, it was brutal physically, but like we've seen brutality in, in, in a, you know, a lot of, a lot of other films. Uh, but this one, like, uh, you know, direct brutality of, of, yeah. you know, Quentin Tarantino stuff. Uh, but this, this was another level. You're right. It is. I mean, that whole sequence of just the beating itself, just that little 30 second sequence mm-hmm. is he hits him. The guy starts to fall. He grabs him. He's like, we're not done yet. And then he keeps going. And so, and then of course you have a dad watching a son, you know, treated this way. It's just absolute torture for the audience. And you know, the most effective way possible. Uh, yeah. It's and oh. so, we go from okay, that. Can we move on? Yeah, <laughs> I can't even <laughs> can't even talk about that anymore. And so we we move into the next sequence with the dress and like, hey, this dress is going to be you know for the captain, like, uh, and call him father and blah blah blah. Like tension is now in place for when we see her hang this dress on a tree and then crawl in mud. We are like, oh my god, because it's not just are you in danger. We don't even care about the frog to a large degree. That's certainly in play. Uh, but we're far more concerned about what is the captain going to do? Because she mm-hmm. is now filthy. He doesn't like her. Um, he's a he's a dick to everyone that he hates. Uh, and what are we going to see whenever it comes to Ophelia? Uh, it's just 
Ugh. And so I love it because the tension is the point. There's no big fallout from this. Uh, the tension is the point and the only real consequence, uh, which is very useful, which is that she misses dinner. Go to bed, yeah. no dinner for you. And that's really, really important because the next test is her walking past a feast. <laughs> so the feast right. test. Oh my God. It's so big because, and I love how they set this one up, right? It's the fawn and he's saying, hey, don't eat anything. Absolutely nothing. Your life depends on it. That's all he does. He doesn't spell out the mechanics of how the thing works and that there's a monster down there. If you eat anything, the monster's going to kill you. He doesn't say that. Instead, they leave that for the audience to assume and to visually build in the in the uh, in the chamber. And so it's just really really nice because we know that she was sent to bed without dinner, and we know she's hungry. And so as she's walking by, eh, no harm, no foul. And we're and it, if anything, the most frustrating thing is that she only eats grapes. And I love that. That's how she justifies it. It was just the grapes. I didn't eat any of the nice stuff. Uh, yeah. In the moment, I'm like, grab a donut or whatever. You know, like grab something chunky. <laughs> if you're going to go for it. Uh, yeah. It's so good. And I, yeah, it's just a really nice payoff to everything, but it just reinforces. And we know, we know that she doesn't quite get it. Yeah. Beautiful storytelling. Yeah. And throughout the film itself, there's so much brutal gore, which I think is uh, part and parcel to the kind of film that this is, um, right? We have that the bottle scene. We have the the leg being sawn off, right? That's a really nice practical effect. Uh, it's utterly disgusting. We have the captain's cheek being sliced open. We have the bullet at the end that hits him in the cheek. What a great, what a great idea. Like we've seen people get shot in the, the forehead a billion times. We are numb to it okay cool someone got shot in the head ha 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 i mean it's pretty dark for humanity for me to be like <laughs> yeah that doesn't affect me um but how do you make death feel personal and consequential and uh, visceral to an audience let's do something different right he gets shot just below the eye and then his eye rolls up and it's just oh it's perfect because only one eye it's asynchronous and so it, it feels much more visceral and, and personal um, it's a very intimate death for someone we hate. Uh, and so on the one hand, we're we're celebrating, but we're also disgusted, um, maybe with ourselves, but certainly with what we're watching. Yeah. And so even the fairy's head, in, t uh, in terms of brutal gore, even the fairy's heads get chewed off, right? There is no safety in the real world for anyone, anything, um, not even the fantasy creatures. And I love how it just removes all that sense of safety um, and predictability uh, by doing so. Mm -hmm. And it, and it costs a lot, like her decision cost the lives of the fairies. Right. But I mean, I, I guess we see, do we see them at the end though? Some other ones. Yeah. Yeah. Are or there other some, ones? Are uh, they good question? I don't know. We, I don't know. Whatever. It doesn't when, matter. When she but, walks out of the room, only one fairy comes out of the little pouch. Uh, no, right. Which, I, I, which the fawn is apparently not pleased with. <laughs> yes, no. And I love how that fairy immediately rats her out like, hey. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, this punk so, ate something. So good. Uh, so I think the, the last thing that I, I think we, we need to wrestle with is the world itself, right? This is a magical world. Um, and what kind of metaphor is this for? It might even be an allegory. I, I just don't know the history of Spain well enough to know what those allegorical, what goes to what. And so 
the, the, the question I think we have to ask, though, is this a battle for the spirit of humanity's soul? Is that kind of the, the symbolism, the metaphor that we're playing with? So you have the fawn, right, says they need to ensure her essence is intact, that she's not immortal. And so we, we're establishing she's a princess and that she's got a greater destiny and a greater history, right? She's born from the moon. That's why you have this birthmark and uh, et cetera. Yet we have a whole world of contrast that's happening from her mom, from Mercedes, right? Mercedes says, when I was a little girl, I believed in a lot of things that I don't believe in anymore. And so everyone, adults are trying to tell her magic isn't real, right? Her mom says point blank, magic does not exist, not for you or me or anyone else. And so we're, we're on the one hand asking ourselves the, the whole buildup of this film is asking that question that we talked about earlier. Is, is the fairy tale real or is it just a fairy tale uh, that we use to make ourselves feel better? And so maybe, maybe not. We, we've touched on that. But I think there's, the metaphor that I would ask is whether or not perhaps this is a metaphor for Spain's soul, right? Uh, or, or maybe some other kind of governmental spirit of the people kind of question metaphor. We're set in Spain, and I think it seems very pertinent to, to that. Uh, but each test seems to represent kind of a, a spiritual test, right? Killing the frog, right, is seems to be some kind of symbolic gesture, right? There's this frog that's hurting the tree from blossoming. And so you might look at that as the captain or maybe um, Frank, uh, Franco, right? The, at the, I, I don't know jack about the history of Spain. So I did a brief Google because they mentioned Franco. Uh, this is the world that you will live in in Franco's, you know, Spain um, with the bread or whatever. Every family will have bread. Uh, and so there, there seems to be some kind of commentary about fascism in Spain specifically and uh, embodied through Franco and the captain. And so uh, maybe Franco or embodied by the captain uh, seems to be the frog that's keeping the tree from blossoming. Um, that's killing the spirit of the tree and everything that is supposed to be taking root and growing from that. And so that's the first test. Can you kill, you know, fascism, a dictator? Can you kill uh, this thing that is killing your people? And then the next test is once you've done that, now you have the keys. Can, can you resist temptation, right? She has to go and resist eating from the, the table in order to get this other thing, right? This, the new test is to walk by and resist eating forbidden fruit that could give way to a greater hunger, to devour innocence. Mm -hmm. Because once you start, you know, what does that open the doorway to? The final test, of course, is resisting sacrificing innocent blood to open the door to the kingdom for yourself, right? There's this sudden need once you get so close to your goal, I just need to bend a little. I need to just, you know, sacrifice my principles just a little to get what I want. It'll be worth it. I promise it'll be worth it. And so, she has to resist that temptation in order to pass the final test. And so I feel like that's symbolic of, you know, you get into power and it's, it's nothing to suddenly have that power and the things that you detested before become a little more palatable. I think we've seen that uh, historically all over the place, like not just in America, but certainly here too. And even within the past 10 years, 20 years, uh, 40 years, like, at century, I mean, throughout our history, right? It's always been mm -hmm. very easy for people in power in our own country to sacrifice others 
to get the means that they think is worth it. Um, and I'm sure we could look at the rest of the world as well, probably Spain. Uh, I mean, Spain certainly had a long history in our, our modern world, you know, pre way before America, you know, hundreds and hundreds and uh, certainly thousands of years. And so I feel like there's a metaphor here for the spirit of the people, spirit of humanity that is at play with the test and the setting that we're in in the first place uh, uh, in occupied Spain. Yeah. And so I don't know. I wow. think it's fascinating and really a really fun way to develop a story for sure, if nothing else. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it felt very, whether it was or not, it felt very culturally influenced, mm-hmm. you know, like the decision, the, the, the story decisions, the, not necessarily the settings, but like the, you know, the way people acted, the almost dictatorship kind of, uh, feel of it. Um, yeah, I can, I can see that. I don't know any history about it either. Same because, uh, I'm pretty sure Guillermo is, uh, Mexican. Yes. Uh, born in Guadalajara. And so what I, the reason I point that out is because he decided to not set this in Mexico. Mm -hmm. He set this in Spain, right? And that's a different texture for sure. But the, the history of Spain during World War II is probably very different from the history of Mexico in 1944. I find that just very important. Um, whenever you decide as a filmmaker to not choose your own home country and instead, I would imagine that that's very pointed uh, and with a purpose. Uh, yeah, I'm just, God, how can you not be absolutely blown away with what, what he accomplished here? This is one of the better films ever made. Uh, and I think it holds up. It certainly the style holds up in today's world. Like same thing with last week, you could release pa- Pan's Labyrinth today and it still is perfect. It still plays absolutely well. Yeah. Hundred percent, hundred percent agree. I mean, every, I I actually wasn't like super excited to watch it again for whatever reason. I mean, I always I liked it before, but I wasn't you know like crazy uh, about it. And then yeah, I mean, I got a couple of minutes in, and I thought, oh no, this is gonna be real good, real good. I mean, and that's the other thing they he doesn't waste any time. That's part of the, one of the reasons why I, I think it's so good is that there's not a lot of fluff happening. It it gets into it pretty quickly. I mean, she finds the labyrinth right away, instantly. Uh, she ends up finding uh, or meeting the uh, fawn pretty quickly into the movie. I mean, I, I want to say within the first 20 minutes. I mean, it's, I don't even know. I don't know, but like very quickly. Um, and stuff just, big, important stuff happens throughout the entirety of the movie. We're not waiting for 40 minutes, 35 minutes for something important to happen. The whole movie is the story because she has three different things she has to do and her mother is dying and her mother is pregnant and this this guy, this tyrant is, you know, killing people. Uh, like all of these things are all happening at the same time. And so it it doesn't have any time to kind of futz around. And it doesn't. I, I love that. Yeah, it's it's really efficient, even though it's a two hour film. Like you said, it's all of it is with a purpose. They there's no extraneous parts. It's all moving in harmony. Yeah. And it's man, I think the thing that I love about this film so much is it's a fairy tale in a traditional way. Like we've gotten very comfortable with our fairy tales, with happy endings, uncomplicated. Right. You have your your quest and your victory. Um, your moment of, you know, potential failure, but at the end of the day, 
you you win um and you get the kiss the frog you get the magic cookie or whatever like it all works out uh and i don't think i and this is where i wrestle a lot because i think we 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 have a world and we have you know parents that want to protect their kids from you know anything bad and that's a natural thing um we want happy kids and uh introduce really good positive vibes and all all those kinds of things are are good goals but also uh worry that we're not preparing kids through you know back in the day and granted today's world is not as dark as it used to be uh as we've said a few times recently like it used to be much harder, right? Life used to be much, much harder. And so I think a lot of the fairy tales of yore, uh, so to speak, uh, were darker, right? Uh, the princess dies, you know, in a lot of stories and the, the little girl gets eaten by the fox, right? Or the, the wolf, the big bad wolf gets the, the, gets the piggies and whatever. Like it, it was not a lot of happy endings. Um, and I, I know that we want healthy kids, uh, but at the same time, I worry that we're also creating a bunch of false expectations with by not introducing quite enough uh, darkness because the the world is dark. There's a lot of failure. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of evil. Not necessarily uh, that mankind itself is evil. That's a other conversation that I'm not talking about. I'm talking about just the general idea that things happen in life. Things don't go your way. Things don't turn out the way you want. Um, and at the end of the day, all life ends in death. And I don't know that we're really prepared for that as well as we once were as a, as a humanity. Um, and so I just wonder if maybe watching something like this is really refreshing to me because I respect that its worldview isn't one with with sparkles right it's one that yeah. is based in something dark and hard to to swallow and i just i like that balance of we need stories like pan's labyrinth um and we don't have almost any of them anymore because it's a little girl going through uh the worst time you know in the world right she's lost mm-hmm. her dad probably they never say they never really hint but you get the impression her dad was killed by this dude and he comes back to get her later. Um, like we don't know why that her dad died. He was a tailor and he dies. That's all we really know. You can't help but feel like, Hey, this guy is not above a little murder for all we know. He's been making widows all, all over the city and waiting to see who's going to give him a son. Oh, you're going to give me a son. Let's get married. And suddenly you're on my, at my mill. Mm-hmm. And so seeing this, but this is all seen from the perspective of a little girl, not from the perspective of adults. And watching a little girl go through a hard time, we're identifying with her in her journey. Um, and I really love that. It's a dark journey. It's it's one that, you know, adults don't want to go through, let alone watch how a child, like you said, how a child would cope going through this kind of world. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I, I, I think that's a somewhat healthy thing to to introduce into the into the world. And I think that's why this story strikes such a chord. You know, I would be surprised if most film lovers don't know about this film and not just people who could have seen it like me when it came out, but people who were too young to watch it, maybe, and saw that, you know, 10 years later, like, oh, it's 2015. Oh, you got to watch Pan's Labyrinth. I imagine that's still happening because it's such a powerful film. And the reason it has that power is that it doesn't shy away from reality um, and, and asking that question, does magic exist? Maybe. 
maybe not. If not, it's a really dark world. Um, but if it does, you know, then, then we have some reprieve. Yeah. The it's, it, I like to compare that. I like that point because, you know, Don Bluth films did that really well for kids. You know, that was one of the, that's one of the things I think that we're missing a lot is that there's a lot of like, um, glossy stuff out there where every, you know, the good guy always wins and everything turns out okay in the end. And that's just not how the world or the universe works in general. And, um, Don Bluth films did that really well. It not only were they dark as in like visually dark. Um, I mean, look at land before time that uh, all dogs go to heaven. Um, but the endings are also, or can be also dark. So like all dogs go to heaven. He actually, you know, whatever. So I'm just, I like that. I wouldn't necessarily let my kids watch this movie. Not this one. I would not let them watch watch this. Um, But, uh, you know, it is, it's, I agree with you. It's good that, that there are unforgiving films, I guess I would say unforgiving, you know, is, would be a good way to, to put that because no matter, no matter what, there are people dying and being killed um, in terrible situations. And there are little girls and little boys who are in terrible situations and they deserve to have a story, you know, as well, you know? So anyway, yeah, great point. Nice. Um, any final thoughts? I just, I'm glad I didn't know what you thought of this film. I didn't know that you thought it was one of the best films ever made. So I'm glad that, that also I, I feel this the same. I wouldn't necessarily put it up there with one of the best films ever made. I don't Mm. think, but I, it is, it's so, enjoyable on so many levels as a film lover that uh, I can, I can, I can put it up pretty high. I will say that for sure. And so I'm glad that you feel the same, if not stronger, obviously. Yeah. I've been saving this one for a while. I knew from the inception of our show that I was going to want to cover this. I just didn't know when it's again, one of those intimidating films that I'm just like, I don't know. And I still feel like there's a lot more to mine here. Um, especially when you get into the metaphors that test themselves. I mean, the creature effects, Doug Jones is a genius. Like his, uh, I mean, that's a pretty sure he's just a white boy, right? He's like white boy in, in Spain and him and Guillermo have, you know, really clicked uh, over his career. Um, and he's gone on to do a lot of other fantastic work. He is, I think he's a, a genius um, and one of these undersung, uh, actors because he does a lot of creature work. And if you just go through his library, you'll be impressed. You'll find a lot of really wonderful work. Um, and if you just watch even projects that aren't necessarily great, but if you watch them for him, you will still have a good time. Like I, Doug Jones, my God, he really is, uh, we're going to get to the end of his career and be very, very, uh, sad and suddenly realize what kind of precious talent that we had on our hands. Uh, he is, he is really magical. Um, what else has he done that uh, I would, that you've seen? I mean, I would have to pull it up. Um, oh, okay. I didn't know if you had, something but there. I mean, Hellboy too, he, he, he did some more, uh, creature oh, yeah. work in there. And I know he did Star Trek discovery, which was not the greatest show, but his work in there was really great. Um, shape of water. Mm-hmm. Let me see what, gotcha. uh, yeah. And so he's done a oh, lot. Guillermo likes him. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. Him and Guillermo definitely go hand in hand. I wonder, uh, I would have to really dig in, I guess, but yeah, he's his work, uh, especially as the fawn, but as the pale man too, uh, he's just good. God. Oh, he was both. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I'd be really shocked if he wasn't, um, oh, that's man. his build for sure. Um, God, that's such a creepy Oh my God, such a creepy dude with his tiny little legs and like 
hanging skin. Oh, my Guillermo's creature design is the best in the business. Like he comes up yeah. with really interesting, strong characters that just stick with you, right? They just really land. Uh, and the pale man and the fawn are just two of the best creature designs of all time. I mean, yeah, they're iconic. Absolutely. Now. I mean, everyone knows this. Every and I'm for you, those of you not on YouTube. Everyone knows this. I'm holding my hands up to my eyes. You know? Heck to the yeah. Like, I, I, if you don't remember anything of this movie, you could watch it once and then, like, not for 20 years. You remember that. It's crazy. Oh, so brilliant. Freaking genius. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. He was in uh, quarantine as an infected guy. Oh, uh, nice. That's nice. Fun. Yeah. Anyway, so he's, he's fantastic. Um, yeah. yeah. And so... I could easily do another one. Uh, like it would be fun. I think to let's dream for a second. We'll have our own fairy tale where our show, you know, it suddenly uh, does really well and we can bring in like Doug Jones and Guillermo, uh, maybe the cafe express team and just hear more about how they accomplish some of these uh, visual effects. Uh, yeah. I would love to hear about that process, creature design, all that, because just watching how Doug Jones moves as the fawn, it's different throughout the film as he's waking up, right? He's kind of stiff and he's like limbering himself and you can feel the joints kind of needing grease uh, and oil. Right. Uh, and then as uh, the film progresses, he kind of loosens up and it takes on a different kind of sinister. He's thinking through his character and he's building it out uh, in a similar way with the, the pale man, um, the way he moves with him and uh, it feels natural, right? You get to the end of that sequence and he's, reaching for uh for uh, Ophelia and you you feel to me it feels right I'm like oh why can't he grab her well his eyes are in his hands and so it makes grabbing things uh, a little tricky yeah. <laughs> and, so, uh, <laughs> and they demonstrate that right when he uh, wakes up he's trying to grab the fairies and it's like this pain in the ass and he you if you watch him he actually pauses uh, with his hands open right before he grabs the fairy and it's because his eyes need to see what he's about to grab yeah and so it's all thought out in his physical acting if you're paying attention uh and yeah i really can't say enough about doug jones he i think he's really really fantastic and so yeah that's my dream is this would be one of the very rare episodes i would want to repeat yeah in order to to hear more from the actual creators themselves um, i mean yeah if we could get one of one of them on here oh my good gosh god magic damn right so uh what are you going to recommend this week man uh, i'm going to go with uh an, another director that we absolutely love and that i kind of reference all the time uh honestly just because i the way that he writes it, he's also a writer uh um it's quentin tarantino film the way that he writes is is just very it's it's just very pointed and he just wants to do he just does whatever he wants to do and in a way he just always makes it work and i'm so i'm going to recommend inglorious bastards which is probably my favorite of of his films out of all of them some of them have gore just for the sake of gore and i'm not really like into that um some of them have just like random story elements which i kind of like but uh, as i said earlier kind of is off-putting but this one is just i think he wrote it for himself I think he wrote, he was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do something. I'm going to fix something. And this is my way of fixing something. And so he, and he made this film and, um, and I just absolutely love it. And I can't, I can't watch it enough. Honestly. Good. That's yeah. One of my favorite opening sequences of all time. Like it's oh. just 
incredible. Yeah. I'm going to uh, recommend a film that ties in this week and last week's uh, films via Maribel Verdu. And so she was in a film by Alfonso Cuaron called Itumama Tambien. And so oh, yeah. it's a absolutely fantastic little character drama. And it's got some heavyweights in there. Gael Garcia Bernal, uh, Diego Luna, and Maribel Verdu. You talked about her earlier and how she was ma- absolutely fantastic as a Mercedes. And she was doing a lot of heavy lifting. Um, and she's just so, so good. And so... Itumama Tambien is a, a story about uh, these two guys who meet this attractive older woman and they go on a road trip together. And it's, it's you know, somewhat graphic. It's, you know, very sexual and also uh, has a lot to say about life. And so it's really, really fantastic if you want to watch some really fantastic performances and early, uh, early-ish Quoron film, you will not be disappointed. Uh, yeah, Itumama Tambien. Stay tuned for next week. We do one more subtitle film called Old Boy. This kind of uh, somewhat finishes our Asian cinema run. Uh, We have one more that we won't be able to get to for a few months. But for now, get ready for uh, quite the adventure (laughs) with Old Boy. Yes. I love subtitle films because they really force you to watch them. Like yeah. you can't look away. You have to stay engaged the entire time. And you, you do, you just simply want to know what's going to be said next. You can't put it off in the background. Um, and in that way, I think they punch harder on average than English uh, speaking films or native language films. Um, and so o- old boy will be yet another one uh, that will probably land a good right hook uh, for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So stay tuned for that. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget drop us a review, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast, Apple podcasts, iTunes, or whatnot. Uh, and leave us a note. If there's something you want us to talk about kind of things you find interesting. Yeah. Let us know in the comments. And if you want to comment on this episode, you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash pans labyrinth. And our quote of the day today is from Roald Dahl. That's pronounced correctly. Uh, And above all, watch with glittering glittering eyes the whole world around you because the greatest secrets are always hidden in the most unlikely places. Those who don't believe in magic will never find it. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Uh, The eyes of a child, right? Everything is magic. How does the microwave work? Everything is magic. It's, it's, it's true. It really is. And, and uh, it beautifully, beautifully said. I love it. This is one of my favorite quotes. It just obviously it speaks to Ophelia and what she was experiencing. And even as viewers, I think it informs us the way we choose to look at the, the film as a whole. Those who don't believe in magic will never find it. Uh, I think it's true as well on, on, you know, the more abstract level of uh, if you never have hope, how can you ever achieve a dream? Um, How can you ever risk anything that would require? And so having hope, believing in magic, I think is, you know, fundamental to uh, the human experience uh, in the best way possible. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. I'm not going to add anything to it because I think I'll just diminish it. It's one of my favorite quotes you've ever picked. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. God. Thank you so much, Wes. I, I loved all of your all of your thoughts here on this film, uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Amazing. Hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Uh, as Wes said, please make sure you subscribe, review us. It all helps. Share us with your friends. Let us know if there's a film that you'd like us to cover. We're all ears. Uh, until next week, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch the movies. 
Uh, we forgot to talk about the lullaby. Yeah, oh well. But what did you think oh. of the lullaby? What do you mean? What did I think of it? Well, I mean, it's such a beautiful song. And oh, I, yeah. I think it informs, you know, the kind of movie that this is, right? It's a it's a it's a fairy tale, but it's also a lullaby, right? She's getting rocked to sleep at the end of the film. And it it really sets the mood because it's not, you know, ring around the rosy. Uh, that kind of buries the the intent of the song in this upbeat kind of demeanor. Instead, it's it's a dirge, right? It feels you know dark and um, lonely and and uh, feels like death and and the hum itself. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I loved it. I loved that there were no words to take you out of it. It was just melody. Um, it was unique melody, which I think all films need, right? Their own like a melody for them like star wars or or whatever like you know having like something that's like theirs and that is that belongs to pan's labyrinth now you know those yeah. those notes um and and with the mu- the music actually went with it as she's humming which i liked a lot you know so there wasn't just music happening and then she's humming over the music no music actually changed when her main root note changed Da-da-da-da-da. It like it changed, and it went with it, and I I liked that a lot. I thought that was brilliant to weave it into the the film at all. I guess you know the whole the whole thing. So yeah, I loved it. Nice. Cutting. <laughs> <laughs>